Welcome to the Entrepreneur Hot Seat, where I talk to entrepreneurs and business people from all walks of life and all levels of success, from millionaires to the people who are just starting out and everyone in between. My objective is not only to learn about their businesses and goals, but about their challenges and fears as well, all with the hopes of helping them and you find a pathway to success. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Entrepreneur Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I am really excited that you're joining me today for an interview with my friend, Matt Prosco. And Matt is a passionate consultant, speaker, and facilitator who leverages his wide experience to help companies and leaders translate strategy and culture into business results. Matt has a rich business background that includes entrepreneurship and executive roles at large companies where he's led business units, global sales organizations, and product development teams. Currently, he is a VP at the strategy execution firm BTS, where I used to work and where Matt and I got to know each other over the last seven years or so, where he works with several Fortune 500 companies in industries across software, oil and gas, technology, consumer goods, professional services, and the like. Matt is originally from Pittsburgh, but he graduated from the University of Texas, Austin, and he is a Texas guy and a football guy through and through. Matt, I am excited to have you on today. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Hot Seat. Good morning, Eddie. How are you? I am doing great. This is cool, man. So, Matt, like I said, you know, we've worked together the last seven years or so at BTS. You've been there a little bit longer, as I mentioned, as a VP running our Austin office, which I've had the pleasure of visiting a few times. Definitely the most fun office at VTS. And I know you've worked with a lot of big companies. I know you have a history of being an entrepreneur as well. And you just came out with a new book on strategy that I thought would be interesting for our audience to hear about. So with that in mind, I thought maybe we could start with a little bit of your background. You wouldn't mind sharing some of your origin story and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, it's, it's been a long and winding road, Andy. I, um, have uh, been in a lot of different industries, a lot of different kind of roles. I think one of the things that's interesting for me about BTS is that it actually rewarded somebody who has been in a lot of different environments and had a lot of different kind of roles. You know, in standard corporate America, there's generally a lot more reward for doing one thing for a very long time and building up an expertise in one very narrow type of function or capability. And that's never been my passion. My passions are things that, that interest me and I probably am a little ADD where I uh, find myself changing interests a lot. But this role at BTS allows me to do that. You know, as, as you said, I've uh, had a lot of different kind of influences in my life, you know, on where I've gotten to today. My uh, hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is definitely one of those. I kind of have a Midwestern kind of hard work, you know, straightforward, straight talking type of background. And I think Texas to a certain degree is another reflection of those ideals. So I think personally that my place has, uh, has shaped my personality. And I've worked in tech companies, I've worked in, you know, medical fields, I've worked in a lot of different kind of environments. And I think one of the things that that's afforded me is the ability to relate other experiences, other companies, other challenges to the one that I'm currently dealing with. And I think it allows me a broader look at problems and a, and a wider range of, of solutions to the problems that my clients bring to me. Yeah, that's great. And I've Having worked in BTS and consulting for the last seven years as well, and one of the things I absolutely love about it, very similar to you, is I love the variety to work with different people, different clients, different industries, and just learn about different things all the time. As I dig into this world and I interview a lot of experts and 
successful entrepreneurs, there's one piece of advice I hear that I often resist. And that's that you need to go deep and be an expert on one thing. And I'm like, no, I want to know a little bit about everything. That's what I want to do. But uh, a lot of people find a lot of success from from being deep on one subject. How has that played out for you? Do you feel like you're more on the variety side and do you find that you can still be successful without being maybe an absolute expert in one area or do you, do you find a, a good balance with that? Well, I think it's a great question and it's definitely been my career journey. And I think if I had an answer to that question, it's gotta be honest about who you are and what really drives you. You cannot be great at something where your full passion is not recruited. And so, you know, I imagine that's a story that a lot of your listeners that are entrepreneurs or people that are considering entrepreneurship, and there's a lot of people out there saying, hey, follow your dreams, and that risk, you know, is always present. And I have to say that, you know, I'm, I'm a family man, and I don't have the same tolerance for risk I had when I was 24. But at the same time, I never ceased to keep looking for the right role for me that was going to recruit my passion fully. And I was fortunate to find BTS. Yeah, that's great. And there is a balance because, you know, you hear these people say, well, yeah, follow your dreams, follow your passion. But the truth is, especially if you are a husband and a father, like both of us, you have a mortgage, like you have responsibility, you have to pay the bills. So if I just said, oh, I really want to be a radio DJ or a singer or something. I have to go start at the bottom somewhere making $10 an hour and it just wouldn't fly, right? So following my dreams wouldn't necessarily be the prudent course. I want to take a, go back a little bit to earlier in your career when you were an entrepreneur before you were working in consulting or, or technology. Uh, what was the company that you started and, and what was that experience like? Yeah, it was called Innovative Rehab. It was simply an extension of the industry that I had been selling in as a as kind of a young guy out of college. And I really felt like there was uh, an opportunity that wasn't being served within my uh, existing company. And, you know, I had a reputation already as a young guy in the industry for somebody who uh, had a strong following with customers and could sell equipment. And so several of the vendors came to me and said, hey, we would like to see you do something you know, for us uh, outside of your company. And so I was fortunate enough to uh, have a bunch of uh, manufacturers that were really sort of backing me almost to a certain degree. And so I would say if there's a lesson there, if you want to be an entrepreneur, the first thing that you're going to have to do is, is to be great at something. And when you do that, the customers come to you and often opportunity and, and money will come to you as well. And when I say be great at something, that sounds pithy. That sounds easy. Well, gee, just be great. But, you know, great is pretty simple. It's hard. It's hard work, you know. So I was somebody who was really dedicated to making my number. I was very driven to uh, being in a in 100% kind of commission role. Everything I sold was something, some of that was going in my pocket. So I was pretty tireless. Yeah, that's great. And there's another thing that I want to pull out of that. And I remember going back to when I was in business school, I took some entrepreneurship classes and some of the advice they gave was that the best thing you can do when you're starting a company is to start with customers in hand. And it sounds like that you were able to do that. You were actually almost pulled into the business by customers saying, hey, we, we have business for you if you just come and create a company. Yeah, there's two elements in there that were the, the cocktail that set up the success. And the first one is having customers that believe in you. Believe me, for sure, people who finance new ventures, they want to know who is it that's buying from you and who would buy from you. Any 
person who's going to back a venture, that's the first thing that they're, they're going to want to know. And then the second piece is really understanding and being able to look for and spot gaps in a market. So finding pain is something that a great salesperson or a great entrepreneur is always looking for. I've always said there's two kinds of things that you can sell. You can sell aspirin and you can sell vitamins. And you always want to be in the aspirin business. Aspirin is selling a solution that really solves a, you know, a pain that somebody finds intolerable. So either it's a customer or in this case, some also vendors that really had product they didn't feel like was hitting a very valuable market in Texas. I positioned myself to help solve that pain. I love that. I actually remember learning that from you several years ago. I think I remember the first time I heard that from you, we were standing in the San Francisco office and you talked about this idea of selling pain relievers or aspirin versus vitamins. And now vitamins might be really good for people or for businesses, but they're not really thinking about that right now. It's not really a pressing issue. Whereas if they've got a broken arm or they're in pain, um, they're willing to pay a lot more money for something. And so if you can actually solve an issue, solve a pain, you're more likely to go out and get new business. And the cool thing is when you see some of these entrepreneurs that actually create pain that people didn't know that existed before, right? And you know, you see their commercial and you're like, yeah, you know what? My blanket doesn't have sleeves in it. I really need <laughs> sleeves in my blanket. That's a big problem, right? And so it's kind of cool when you see companies that can kind of create that pain. So you ran that company for, uh, I think you said seven years, is that right? Yeah, seven or eight years. And I sold it to my employees. I was just ready to do something else. You know, that, like I told you a little bit about my ADD problem, you know, the tech boom is, was happening then in 99. And uh, I just was ready for a new environment and a new challenge. I kind of felt like my personal sort of skills had plateaued and it was time to go do something new. And Austin, Texas was a city I always wanted to get back to. That's where I went to college. And there was a lot of tech companies there that needed sales leadership. And that was what I knew how to do. And so uh, I sold my company to my employees. I financed it to them. And I'm really proud to say that, you know, that company created jobs for some people. It was about a $3 million company. It wasn't big, but it had, it fed 13 people. And that company's still operating today. And, and I still occasionally mentor people that are, are working still at that company. So I'm proud of that. Oh, that's so cool. I think uh, it's funny when you get into the consulting world that we're in dealing with billion dollar companies, you say something like, ah, 3 million, it wasn't very big. But to a lot of people listening to this interview, they're thinking $3 million is a pretty good sized company. That's, and with 13 employees, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty impressive. But it's, everything is relative, right? In, in the, the things that we deal with. Was it hard transitioning from running your own business to going back into the corporate world and working for other people? It really wasn't. It was, um, you know, one of the things that has been kind of a trademark, I think, for the changes that I've made, they've been really abrupt ones. When I went from my first job out of college was with PepsiCo, uh, running a sales territory for them, and then going to medical, I used to joke that I didn't know my anterior from my posterior. <laughs> and so I was learning an entirely new environment, a whole new industry completely from the ground up. So when I got there, I had no no chance to look around and decide whether it was hard. I just, I had to dig in and figure it out. And, and when I left there and went to a software company, we were actually a software company that made software tools for people who wrote software. So, you know, this was like the, 
the guts of, of, of a tech company, really, you know, and uh, I had to made the joke then that I didn't know a compiler from a debugger. And so I had to learn that one as well. When I came to BTS, I'd never been a consultant. So that's been something that's been a pattern for me. And it's been something I think that uh, I've never been afraid of. And I've, it's always been something I could give my full energy. This episode of the Entrepreneur Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. At Advantage, we offer creative learning solutions that can help accelerate leadership development, business acumen, sales performance, and business results. Our clients say we're imaginative, collaborative, insightful, and fun. For more info, visit AdvantagePerformance.com or call us at 415-925-6832. And now back to the show. Yeah, you know, and it's something that when I stop and think about it, I've been impressed with in thinking about what you've done, Matt, because I know you've jumped around in, in different careers, dug in and learned these things. And I think you're known for also coming into BTS, the consulting company, having been a former executive, a former uh, CEO of a small business uh, and actually being humble enough to dig in at the sort of the entry-level consulting role to learn everything, be humble, know that you have a lot to learn and grow. And that's been one of the things that's allowed you to grow in the company. I wasn't there when you first started, but I've, I know that about you. I've heard of those stories. And uh, it's something that a lot of people with your level of experience might not be able to do. So could you maybe talk about that? How were you able to do that? And why was that so important uh, versus just going on to maybe another executive role? Yeah. So first I would say it's never as easy as it looks. Somebody says that, oh, wow, look what he did. That must, you know, he just did that easily. There's been, there was plenty of pride swallowing days that I was not so sure I wanted to continue, especially when you had somebody, you know, telling you something and they've never worked anywhere else but BTS and, and they were quite so certain how right they were. So, you know, that certainly did have its challenging days. But I've always been somebody who led from the front. You know, I've, I've never been comfortable sitting behind an oak desk and then pointing around while other people work. That's just not been me. And on the other hand, it's the consulting concept when I got a closer look at what BTS did and I realized that it offered that kind of work environment that we're talking about where we have this kind of broad variety and a possibility for real autonomy and how you do things and how you work. And to me, that was very attractive. And so, you know, as I've been on my career search and anybody who's on an entrepreneurial search, it's really about trying to find a work and a lifestyle and a type of work engagement that really excites you. And that's what I would, you know, coach everybody to do out there. Nice. Well, speaking of coaching, so you've been, you've had this successful career going within consulting and a lot of stuff going on with that. You've also got a family. And I was surprised to see a few months back that you were coming out with a book. And it was actually a pretty unique idea combining business strategy and football. So where did this idea come from? And, and how did this come about that you decided to, to write this book? Yeah, it's a little bit of a funny story. My son played football at, a, at our local high school and our local high school is a bit of a football factory. It had won, when he was there, it had won in five state championships in a row, which is something that had never happened in the state of Texas before. And I was watching uh, one of their state championship games and was high up in the, in the stadium and I had an opportunity to kind of really watch plays unfold. And uh, I won't get too detailed with the story, but I was just blown away by the level of execution that they were getting out of 16-year-old kids. 
And as I was watching it, it just struck me that the kind of work I do with my clients and trying to help them execute, trying to get people aligned, trying to get people focused on executing their bread and butter plays and their companies, that there was a real uh, corollary there. And I really felt that there was lessons that football could teach a business leader. And as I kept exploring it, it just kept growing and growing. And, and actually the book that I just launched called Ahead of the Chains is actually only half of, of the work that I've put into it. The other half is in a second book that'll be coming out in 2019. Wow, that's amazing, man. And I can definitely see it having you know been a lifelong football fan. There's so much strategy involved. Uh, and so much um, personal relationships and influencing involved and, and getting people to do the things that you need to do, teamwork, uh, all of that stuff. One question I want to ask, is: I think a lot of entrepreneurs think about this when you see so many people out there that are coming out with books and think like, oh, maybe I might want to do that one day. You've got as much going on as anybody running essentially, you know, a big office. You've got a family at home. How did you, how did you do it? How did you write a book? It was, the answer is it was a long process. You know, uh, I had never done it before. So just like anybody who's never done something before, you don't ever take the straightest path. You meander a little bit. And, and I definitely did as well. It's, I started writing the book actually in 2012, just on, uh, on, you know, legal pads here and there. It was really a project for the longest time that was simply vacations and Christmas breaks and things like that when I would get, you know, odd times to myself. It was something that I just enjoyed exploring and had fun with. It was uh, really recreation for me for a while. And then after it really started taking shape, I, I, then I got serious about it in the last year or so to go ahead and, and uh, finish it and put a bow on it. So uh, if, I, if there was a lesson, I would say is that, you know, back in high school, they taught you how to make, to write a, a paper with, and, you know, have an outline and start with the end in mind and do that. I would say, listen to your English teacher. That, that's a good method. <laughs> I'm method of uh, writing a bunch of anecdotes and then pulling them together later is the long way. <laughs> yeah. I, I was also thinking of the old uh, adage, uh, how do you eat an elephant, right? And it's one bite at a time, right? And I was even reading this book this morning talking about advice for handling these large projects like writing a book that if you just look at it as, oh, I want to write a book, it's too intimidating, right? But if you just start breaking it down and writing notes here and there when you're on vacation, like you said, uh, and chunking it out, then it's, it's possible, right? And that's the advice I've also heard from other authors that, you know, they just block 30 minutes every morning and write. And before you know it, you've actually got some chapters in a book. I would agree. I mean, it's, it, I did happen to find it more difficult to write that way. I needed more of, of hours in a row than I could mm. in, in a row. But I know other people who have done it just that way. You know, I, I would explore first really just what is it that you really want to say? You know, what, it, what what's the message that you really want to get out there? And then if you're clear about that, then it's not as hard as you think to write a book. Yeah. So we've got a lot of entrepreneurs, aspiring entrepreneurs who listen to the show and uh, a lot of people that may be starting new businesses either on the side or as a business. Uh, and I know from, you know, just looking through your book that um, there's a lot in there about vision and strategy. What have you learned from the game of football? What are some of the lessons there on setting a vision to you know, send your, your company going in the right direction? Yeah, I would say that the first one is, is to really have a clear picture of what the destination looks like and to be able to paint that picture very, very clearly. I seem to remember that you were somebody who really spends time with visualization. And, you know, I think it's a really powerful tool. Uh, I start the book off basically by talking uh, about a story where a coach that was a new coach coming into a program, 
you know, asked all the people at the press conference to close their eyes. And as he, you know, you know, talked about what the scene was going to be like inside the stadium. And the coach was Dino Babers. He was going to Syracuse University, not really recently a football powerhouse. Uh, And interestingly enough, you know, he painted a very clear picture of what he thought Syracuse football was going to be. And if you've, you know, watched football the last couple of years, they've pulled some very big victories, including uh, the former national champion. That's right. Uh, Knocked off Clemson this year, yeah. So his vision is coming true, and, and I, I believe that it was at least in part because of how clear what he wanted you know, to deliver uh, was to him at the time. And so what I would say is, for your entrepreneurs, really think about not just the lifestyle you're going to have with your entrepreneurial idea, because I think sometimes we tend to think about that more than we think about the delivery of the service, but to really believe and visualize what it's going to be like for your customer to consume whatever it is that you're delivering to them. And think about that in as great a detail and, and richness as you can. Yeah. So really the importance of, of setting that goal, figuring out where you want to go and, and visualizing that. And I like this idea of bringing other people with you, right? So the, the press conference or whatever it is, it could be your, your colleagues, your employees, your partners, having them visualize that too and really show them where you're going. So now you've got this vision, but you do need a game plan, right? And some people may feel like they're coming into a new industry, a new business. There's a lot of other people out there. Maybe they're coming from a position of weakness. I saw that you, you talk about in the book as well. So how do they put that strategy together, especially if they feel like they're coming from not, not really coming from a position of strength? That's right. Yeah. So it's, it's really important to understand who you are, you know, from the inside out with what you can do, what your capabilities are, the kind of things that you can bring to the table for your identified customer market or whatever, but then also to take a look at it from the customer's perspective and and from the perspective of the market or your competitors and really understand what sort of, you know, opportunities and threats, you know, are are out there. It's not a new or revolutionary topic. Uh, The SWAT framework is is something that's been around a long time, but I think the interesting part about the SWAT framework is is not necessarily just filling it out. It's what you do with it afterwards. And great entrepreneurs, for the most part, are almost always starting from a position of weakness. You know, they're not an incumbent, and they're trying to upset the incumbent. So what they're really looking for is opportunities that they can exploit. And uh, I use an example in the book for that basic combination. It's essentially uh, the formation of the West Coast offense, which I think anybody who's uh, much of a football fan sort of understands what that is. But it was actually not even invented in the West Coast at all. It was invented uh, by the Cincinnati Bengals when Bill Walsh was the offensive coordinator for uh, Paul Brown at, at the Cincinnati Bengals back in the early 70s. And the reason why it ever came up was not just because somebody wanted to dream up something. They were in a position of weakness that they had to innovate their way out of. And essentially, Walsh was brought there to run the Sid Gilman passing game, which is a vertical passing game that we're familiar with in the NFL. You know, it's outs and curls and bombs and so on and so forth. And he just didn't have a quarterback who could throw it. You know, he had one that he drafted and he was awesome and he got a rotator cuff problem and never came back from it. So the quarterback he was left with was was weak-armed but at least he was accurate and he was mobile. So he said, well, I'm going to have to make the passes shorter. I'm going to have to get this guy out from behind the line and have these kind of sprint outs. And I don't have wide receivers that can stretch the field. So I'm going to have to have them run sideways instead of vertically. And that became 
should have been called the Ohio River offense. But, uh, <laughs> that it, it ended up becoming the, the West Coast offense. It was born completely out of desperation and out of look, coming from a position of weakness and looking for an opportunity to exploit. That's uh, interesting. And I'm not the football expert you are, but I think maybe it became more famous when Bill Walsh went to the West Coast to take on the head coaching job at the San Francisco 49ers, right? And he took these quarterbacks, Joe Montana, especially Steve Young, who also wasn't known for having a, a big arm and made them Super Bowl champions as a result. And that's the other lesson in this is once you've uncovered your, your method, right? Because when, when he saw what he was able to do and what people don't remember from the 70s is that the Cincinnati Bengals had passing title winners uh, all during the 70s, even when they were running second place to the Steelers in their own division all the time. So that offense didn't get a lot of visibility because of the Steelers, but he knew that he had something. So in the position of weakness, he uncovered a need that was out there and he fleshed it out and turned it into his particular system and then when he was out recruiting talent, he knew exactly what he was looking for. I needed a mobile quarterback. I need an accurate quarterback. So the idea of the prototypical ones that were still getting drafted very high, that was not his guy. Hmm. So knowing what it is you need as you start building out your team around you for your entrepreneurial effort, be crystal clear about what it is you need from a talent perspective to be able to make your play, you know, your system go and be ruthless in that effect. Yeah, interesting. And speaking of talent, and the last section of the book is about culture. And you mentioned another famous coach that I'm familiar with, Urban Meyer, who, when he coached my Florida Gators, came from a position of weakness. I was actually just looking at my my time hop for anybody that uses that. It was this week, 11 years ago, that I was at the BCS National Championship game watching my Gators beat Ohio State, who were huge Huge favorites in that game, but uh, we came from a position of weakness with a freshman quarterback who some said did not have a very good arm. Actually, our senior quarterback, Chris Leak, and our freshman quarterback, Tim Tebow, both of which weren't known for having big arms, but uh, won that game. But you also, so you, you talk about, use him as an example to talk about culture. What is that about and why is that so important for uh, the companies you've worked with? Yeah, it's critically important. It's when I talk about it in the book, Vision and strategy are things that you sort of work on together. Once you've set your destination, then you figure out how you're going to get there. But it all rests on culture. And that's whether or not you're a gigantic company like Southwest Airlines or you're a small entrepreneurial thing like, uh, like I ran myself. It doesn't matter. It's the same thing. It's, it's what is it that is going to have to be your way of working such that your strategy is going to work, such that you're going to be able to reach that vision. There is a culture that is consistent with that. You have to find it, you have to design it, and then you have to really reinforce it. And, you know, following along with your example um, of your Gators, both Chris Leak and Tim Tebow, the reason why they were so important and the reason why Florida was so successful was not their athletic talent. It was their contributions to culture. Urban Meyer is one of the cases in the book, and, and he's a big believer in his word of alignment and making sure that everybody is aligned to their behaviors are aligned to winning. And from his perspective, the thing that was most important is that your leader on the field has to also be the leader in the locker room. And without that, you will not have a successful team. Your best performers have to be your culture leaders. And so Tim Tebow was somebody who was, as everybody probably knows, he's a football fan. He's a gym maniac, right? And at one point in time, Urban Meyer wouldn't let him come in for early morning workouts anymore unless 
he brought somebody with him from what he called the 80. So Urban Meyer had a 10-80-10 rule. So he believed that 10% of the people are going to be your culture leaders. 80% are kind of sitting on the fence or maybe along for the ride. And 10% are recalcitrant and of no use. Get them out. But from his perspective, Tim Tebow's main job was to grab one more person from the 80 pool and pull them into the 10 pool. That's awesome. And I can see how that can work so much in business. I mean, you and I have been around enough companies uh, who are working on culture change and strategy shifts and uh, where we're trying to help them with that. And you've got some leaders who are, are ready for it and on the, the forefront. And then you've got a lot of people who are like sitting on the sidelines going, I don't know if we really need to make this change. Things have been going fine the way they are. You've got to find a way to convince them to get them all moving in the right direction and you know, contributing to that culture and to that strategy. Otherwise, you're going to run into trouble. Uh, it's so true. And it's interesting. I won't say the company, but I was working with a large uh, FMCG company in the last couple of months. And I was working with the group just like you've done a dozens, dozens of times. And like you said, you can analyze any crowd very quickly and you can see the 10 and you can see the 80 and you can see the last 10 as well. Mm -hmm. And they're always there. And there was one that was in that bottom 10 kind of classification in this one group. And even though it was a group of high potential leaders, this person was cynical to the bone and, and he was taking the entire group down. And the client pulled me aside and asked me what they thought they ought to do. And I said, fire him right now, fire him today. Wow. <laughs> and, and they were like, oh, wow, you know. Uh, <laughs> Can't yeah, do that. Okay. Nice, but what do you really think we ought to do? And I said, I mean it right now, fire him today. Don't spend one more minute on him. And I said, this is a hypo group where he's very publicly seen and he's has no compunction about taking the entire room down with him. What do you think he's doing back on, in your corporate offices? And I said, that negativity does not have any bottom to it. That energy never runs out. If we could package that, global warming is a thing of the yesteryear. But that energy never quits. And what you have to do is pluck it out. And I would say that for every entrepreneur. If you find somebody that is not all in with you, the first best move you can do is to uh, remove them from your, from your culture and your environment. It'll hurt for a little while as you try to replace them when you're a group of three. Going from three to two is a 50% reduction in staff. And I get it. I've been there. But uh, if I have a lesson, it's that don't spend your time on below average performers. When you find one, when you find somebody who's not a culture fit, don't try to understand it, remove it. Yeah, it's so hard to do. But if you know in your gut that they are just, not only they're not adding value, but they're actually detracting from the company, they're bringing people down. It's the same thing when people are unhappy. They're usually louder than the people who are happy and they try to bring people down with them. So you just, you don't want that, that cancer in your company. Um, Matt, we got to start to wrap things up. Um, again, for you know people that are, entrepreneurs or starting out as entrepreneurs, you've been down that road, you've been in business for a long time. If there's any other piece of advice you could give someone who's starting out in their own business, what would that be? You know, I would stick with the concept of really understanding the customers that you're going to be trying to serve. And when you think you, you understand that your solution is just going to be perfect and you're excited about the solution, just make sure you're as excited or more excited about how the customer is going to acquire it, how the customer is going to use it, how the customer is going to tell other people about it, because it begins and ends with them. And I think sometimes the, one of the curses of entrepreneurism is coming across that novel idea that you get really wound up in and you're not objective about it anymore. 
And the only people that can keep you objective on this, your friends won't. They'll tell you what you want to hear. Your negative friends will tell you what you don't want to hear. Customers will tell you what you need to hear. I like that. And I'm glad you said to get excited about how your customers acquire it because you and I are both sales guys. We know that you can have the best product in the world, but if you don't find a way to get it in your customer's hands, it doesn't matter. They're never going to see it. That's right. You're not going to use it. You don't need customer service if you don't have sales, right? It doesn't matter. So Matt, this has been awesome. Uh, for anybody listening who wants to get a hold of the new book uh, or maybe get in contact with you, uh, where do they go to find the book? How do they, how do they get in touch? Ah, that's great. Thank you. So the book is available on Amazon right now. It's called Ahead of the Chains. Uh, I think anybody who's a football fan will figure out what that means. But it's, a, it's available in a hardback and, and in Kindle versions. And if you want to know a little bit more about the book or you'd like to reach out and, and connect to me, you can go to the book's website, headofthechains.com. And uh, it has all the information that you would need there. Got it. All right. The book is, again, is called Ahead of the Chains. It's on Amazon, or you can go to aheadofthechains.com. Matt, it's been really awesome talking to you today. Thank you so much for coming on the Entrepreneur Hot Seat. Thanks, Andy. All right, man. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Hot Seat. You can find more information at entrepreneurhotseat.com or my personal website, andystorch.com. Please don't forget to leave us a review on iTunes. And if you have any questions or comments, or if you are looking for ways to take your life and business to the next level, you can send me an email to andy at andystorch.com. Take care.